0: Okay, well it is Saturday, November 14th, a day after Paris, and as you all know, at least 129 people were murdered last night by jihadists, probably affiliated with ISIS. ISIS has claimed credit for it, Uh, and many hundreds of people were injured, so the death toll will almost certainly rise uh, by the time you've heard this. Um, I hope to get this podcast out tomorrow, Sunday, but um, anyway, that's where things stand at the moment. And um, my Twitter feed is just inundated with people wondering what I have to say about this event. And I have nothing new to say. This is a situation I've been in now many times. I I sit down to write or um, in some other way respond to recent events, and I find that I've said this stuff a hundred times over. You just have to change the dates and a few of the nouns in a blog post or a lecture, and you find what you've said is totally appropriate to the moment. Now that's depressing because it means we are making the same mistakes over and over again, and um, the stakes are all just getting incrementally higher. So rather than struggle to write something new, I'm going to read an older essay entitled Sleepwalking Toward Armageddon. And I wrote this uh, just a year ago, on September 10th, uh, 2014, after the uh, murder of journalist James Foley by uh, Jihadi John, who uh, was killed yesterday, I believe, in a drone strike, or was reported to have been killed. So I will read that and perhaps um, offer an aside or two on recent events, I'll be speaking with Douglas Murray on Monday. I'm not sure when I'll publish that podcast. Probably it might take a week to get that out. But our conversation of this week was preempted by a cold of mine, and I, which I'm just getting over. So um, my voice is even less euphonious than it normally is. Sorry for that. Uh, I offer this essay because it really is what I'm thinking now. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind. As I've been saying for 14 years, this is the big story of our time, and it is an incredibly boring one. Right? Just let, let the boredom of this just sink into your bones. Realize that for the rest of your life, you're going to be reading and hearing about, and otherwise witnessing, hopefully not firsthand, the lunacy and attendant atrocities of jihadists. Please pay attention To the recurrent shrieks of Allahu Akbar. Uh, This is the catcall from the Middle Ages or from Middle-earth that we will have to live with for the rest of our lives. So this fight against jihadism and Islamism generally, this is a generational fight. This is something we are doing for our children, ultimately, and our children's children. And we have a war of ideas, That we have to wage and win. And unfortunately, we have to wage it and win it with ourselves first. And again, this requires an admission that there is such a war of ideas to be waged and won, which is the purpose of my most recent book with Majid Nawaz. But the, the balance has to swing. Denying this problem, denying the problem of Islamism, denying that Islam, the religion, as a unique problem at this moment in history. That has to become as unseemly and as reputationally costly as any dangerous expression of bigotry now is. It certainly has to be more costly than an honest discussion of the problem is. People are referring to these events in Paris as a wake-up call. Who on earth at this moment needs a wake-up call? If you didn't wake up, On September 12, 2001, there may be no hope for you. What will it take to get your attention? There are no surprises anymore. We have to relinquish our capacity for surprise here. There is nothing so destructive that these people won't attempt it. The only thing that has prevented them from killing millions of people is a lack of technology, and we have to ensure that they never get it. But the idea that our enemies are sufficiently like ourselves and that they won't set this world on fire is pure delusion. Most of you aren't even comfortable with the word enemy, right? To refer to jihadists as our enemies, somehow that is provocative. We have grown so effete as a civilization as to imagine that we have no enemies, or if we do, they're only of our own making. And when people on the right call them barbarians, well then that is just demagoguery. Those are just our own demons springing into view. You have to get some perspective here. It is not mere wartime propaganda that we will one day look back on with embarrassment to call ISIS a death cult, to call them barbarians, to call them savages, to use dehumanizing language They are scarcely human in their aspirations. The world they want to build entails the destruction of everything we value and our right to value. And by we I mean civilized humanity, including all the Muslims who are just as horrified by the Islamist and Jihadist project as I am. We have a project that's universal, that transcends culture that unites everyone who loves art and science and reason generally, who wants to cure disease, who wants to raise each new generation to be more educated than the last. And this common project is under assault. So if you can't get your head straight about that, you think there might be two sides to this war. and That this is blowback, that we're somehow culpable for it. You have not understood what these people are about and they have been telling you what they're about ceaselessly. So, the problem is with you. Watch some of their videos, if you can stomach it. And if you can't stomach it, that should tell you something. And unfortunately, most of us, we have to keep convincing ourselves that evil exists, that not all people want the same things, and that some people are wrong in how they want to live, and in what sort of world they want to build. And if we can't convince ourselves of this once and for all, well, then we'll have to wait to be convinced by further acts of savagery of the sort that we just saw in Paris. Why wait? Why not get your head straight now? Again, the, 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 the situation I most fear is that more and more, with liberals failing to see the dynamics of this problem, there will come a time where the only people who have the moral conviction to oppose this death cult behavior, will be nearly as bad as the Islamists themselves. Now I, I'm speaking of right-wing Christian fascists of some sort. You, know, you have to ask yourself, you know, if there was an election in Paris tomorrow, who would you vote for? Right? And if this happens ten more times in Paris, who will the French vote for? This mass psychological experiment is being run in every country in Europe and no doubt will be run again in the U.S. at some point. This problem is not going away and we have to prepare ourselves politically for the reality of what is coming our way. You can only hope that the U.S. government and the British government behind the scenes have been making much more sense than they do in public on this issue. But our stumbling and half-hearted measures are not encouraging. And in response to yesterday's events, President Obama, in his statement, committed precisely the same sin of omission that I describe in this essay. Nothing has changed. And he has had every opportunity to acknowledge what is actually going on in the world, and he has refused to do it for reasons that no doubt attest to the enormity of the problem. Surely he thinks that if he names this evil as Islamism, or Islamic extremism, or political Islam. He will inspire many more Muslims to believe that the West is at war with Islam, driving them into the arms of the Islamists and jihadists. If tens of millions of Muslims, or hundreds of millions, are so precariously perched on this moral precipice, if they could be so easily toppled into aligning themselves with theocracy, we should be speaking honestly about that problem. So, in response to recent events, I give you my essay, Sleepwalking Toward Armageddon. In his speech responding to the horrific murder of James Foley by a British jihadist, President Obama delivered the following rebuke, using an alternate name for ISIS. ISIL speaks for no religion, and no faith teaches people to massacre innocents. No just God would stand for what they did yesterday and what they do every single day. ISIL has no ideology of any value to human beings. Their ideology is bankrupt. We will do everything we can to protect our people and the timeless values that we stand for. May God bless and keep Jim's memory. And may God bless the United States of America. In his subsequent remarks outlining a strategy to defeat ISIS, the president declared, Now let's make two things clear. ISIL is not Islamic. No religion condones the killing of innocents and the vast majority of ISIL's victims have been Muslim. ISIL is a terrorist organization, pure and simple, and it has no vision other than the slaughter of all who stand in its way. May God bless our troops, and may God bless the United States of America. As an atheist, I cannot help wondering when this scrim of pretense and delusion will be finally burned away, either by the clear light of reason or by a surfeit of horror meted out to innocence by the parties of God. Which will come first? the flying cars and vacations to Mars, or a simple acknowledgment that beliefs guide behavior, and that certain religious ideas, jihad, martyrdom, blasphemy, apostasy, reliably lead to oppression and murder. It may be true that no faith teaches people to massacre innocents, exactly. But innocence, as the president surely knows, is in the eye of the beholder. Are apostates innocent? Blasphemers? Polytheists? Islam has the answer, and the answer is no. More British Muslims have joined the ranks of ISIS than have volunteered to serve in the British armed forces. In fact, this group has managed to attract thousands of recruits from free societies throughout the world to help build a paradise of repression and sectarian slaughter in Syria and Iraq. This is an astonishing phenomenon, and it reveals some very uncomfortable truths about the failures of multiculturalism, the inherent vulnerability of open societies, and the terrifying power of bad ideas. No doubt many enlightened concerns will come flooding into the reader's mind at this point. I would not want to create the impression that most Muslims support ISIS, nor would I want to give any shelter or inspiration to the hatred of Muslims as people. In drawing a connection between the doctrine of Islam and jihadist violence, I'm talking about ideas and their consequences, not about 1.5 billion nominal Muslims, many of whom do not take their religion very seriously. But a belief in martyrdom, a hatred of infidels, and a commitment to violent jihad are not fringe phenomena in the Muslim world. These preoccupations are supported by the Quran and numerous hadith. That is why the popular Saudi cleric, Muhammad al-Arifi, sounds like the ISIS army chaplain. The man has 9.5 million followers on Twitter, twice as many as Pope Francis has. I just double-check that. He now has over 13 million followers and still twice as many as Pope Francis has. If you can find an important distinction between the faith he preaches and that which motivates the savagery of ISIS, you should probably consult a neurologist. Understanding and criticizing the doctrine of Islam and finding some way to inspire Muslims to reform it is one of the most important challenges the civilized world now faces. But the task isn't as simple as discrediting the false doctrines of Muslim extremists because most of their views are not false by the light of scripture. A hatred of infidels is arguably the central message of the Quran. The reality of martyrdom and the sanctity of armed jihad are about as controversial under Islam as the resurrection of Jesus is under Christianity. It is not an accident that millions of Muslims recite the Shahada or make pilgrimage to Mecca. Neither is it an accident that the horrific footage of infidels and apostates being decapitated has become a popular form of pornography throughout the Muslim world. Each of these practices, including this ghastly method of murder, find explicit support in Scripture. Now I should say as an aside, I just happened to be looking at Twitter today and someone included one of these images as a particularly hard hitting and appropriately outraged response to some Islamist apologetics. But you know, this is an image that I would certainly rather not have seen and can't unsee, and it was of a woman was described as as a Yazidi woman. Uh, having her throat cut and bled out into a bowl that was filled with her blood. And she was naked, and this was just as horrible an image as you can imagine, and perhaps you can't imagine. Because the way you have to view an image like this is in the context of a wider understanding that the people who are doing this consider it an act of worship. This is the fulfillment of their norms, not a violation of them. And when these images get circulated among jihadists, they inspire rapturous approval. These are recruitment images, calculated to entice those who also view the world this way, who want to participate in an orgy of bloodletting and violence, and who view the prospect of their own deaths with absolute equanimity, because they are certain of paradise. These are the people we're dealing with. These are the people who were on the streets of Paris last night, This is not an ordinary war, and if you can't get your head straight about that you really can't participate in an intelligent discussion about what's going on here. These are not people motivated by ordinary political or economic or even tribal grievances. The real engine of this violence is religious ideology, sincere belief. That has to be understood. Okay, that was all a digression from my essay. This is back to the text. But there's now a large industry of obfuscation designed to protect Muslims from having to grapple with these truths. Our humanities and social science departments are filled with scholars and pseudo-scholars, deemed to be experts in terrorism, religion, Islamic jurisprudence, anthropology, political science, and other diverse fields, who claim that where Muslim intolerance and violence are concerned, nothing is ever what it seems. Above all, these experts claim that one can't take Islamists and jihadists at their word. Their incessant declarations about God, paradise, martyrdom, and the evils of apostasy are nothing more than a mask concealing their real motivations. What are their real motivations? Insert here the most abject hopes and projections of secular liberalism. How would you feel if Western imperialists and their mapmakers had divided your lands, stolen your oil, and humiliated your proud culture? Devout Muslims merely want what everyone wants, political and economic security, a piece of land to call home, good schools for their children, a little leisure to enjoy the company of friends. Unfortunately, most of my fellow liberals appear to believe this. In fact, to not accept this obscurantism as a deep insight into human nature and immediately avert one's eyes from the teachings of Islam is considered a form of bigotry. In any conversation on this topic, one must continually deploy a firewall of caveats and concessions to irrelevancy. Of course U.S. foreign policy has problems. Yes, we really must get off oil. No, I didn't support the war in Iraq. Sure, I've read Chomsky. No doubt the Bible contains equally terrible passages. Yes, I heard about the abortion clinic bombing in 1984. No, I'm sorry, Hitler and Stalin were not motivated by atheism. The Tamil Tigers? Yeah, of course I've heard of them. Now, can we honestly talk about the link between belief and behavior? Yes, many Muslims happily ignore the apostasy and blasphemy of their neighbors, view women as the moral equals of men, and consider anti-Semitism contemptible. But there are also Muslims who drink alcohol and eat bacon. All of these persuasions run counter to the explicit teachings of Islam to one degree or another. And just like moderates in every other religion, most moderate Muslims become obscurantists when defending their faith from criticism. They rely on modern secular values, for instance, tolerance of diversity and respect for human rights, as a basis for reinterpreting and ignoring the most despicable parts of their holy books. But they nevertheless demand that we respect the idea of revelation, and this leaves us perpetually vulnerable to more literal readings of scripture. The idea that any book was inspired by the creator of the universe is poison, intellectually, ethically, and politically. And nowhere is this poison currently doing more harm than in Muslim communities, East and West. Despite all the obvious barbarism in the Old Testament and the dangerous eschatology of the New, it is relatively easy for Jews and Christians to divorce religion from politics and secular ethics. A single line in Matthew, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, largely accounts for why the West isn't still hostage to theocracy. The Qur'an contains a few lines that could be equally potent. For instance, there's no compulsion in religion, chapter 2, surah 256. But these sparks of tolerance are easily snuffed out. Transforming Islam into a truly benign faith will require a miracle of reinterpretation. And a few intrepid reformers, such as Majid Nawaz, are doing their best to accomplish it. Many believe it unwise to discuss the link between Islam and the intolerance and violence we see in the Muslim world fearing that it will increase the perception that the West is at war with the faith and cause millions of otherwise peaceful Muslims to rally to the jihadist cause. I admit that this concern isn't obviously crazy, but it merely attests to the seriousness of the underlying problem. Religion produces a perverse solidarity that we must find some way to undercut. It causes in-group loyalty and out-group hostility even when members of one's own group are behaving like psychopaths. But it remains taboo in most societies to criticize a person's religious beliefs. Even atheists tend to observe this taboo and enforce it on others because they believe that religion is necessary for many people. After all, life is difficult and faith is a balm. Most people imagine that Iron Age philosophy represents the only available vessel for their spiritual hopes and existential concerns. This is an enduring problem for the forces of reason because the most transformative experiences people have Bliss, devotion, self-transcendence are currently anchored to the worst parts of culture and to ways of thinking that merely amplify superstition, self-deception, and conflict. Among all the harms caused by religion at this point in history, this is perhaps the most subtle, even when it appears beneficial, inspiring people to gather in beautiful buildings to contemplate the mystery of existence and their ethical commitments to one another. Religion conveys the message that there is no intellectually defensible and non-sectarian way to do this. But there is. We can build strong communities and enjoy deeply moral and spiritual lives without believing any divisive nonsense about the divine origin of specific books. And it is this misguided respect for revelation that explains why, in response to the starkest conceivable expression of religious fanaticism, President Obama has responded with euphemisms and missiles. This may be the best we can hope for, given the state of our discourse about religion. Perhaps one day, we will do, quote, everything we can to protect our people and the timeless values that we stand for. But today, we won't even honestly describe the motivations of our enemies. And in the act of lying to ourselves, we continue to pay lip service to the very delusions that empower them. Okay, so that's where the original essay ended. and. um Forgive me for thinking that it uh, stands as an adequate response to uh, recent events, but uh, I really don't see a word of it that I need to change. Again, I'll be speaking to uh, Douglas Murray soon. As many of you know, Douglas is a um, truly inspired commentator on this problem. So I look forward to that, and I will get that to you soon. Until then, thanks for listening. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advance tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.